Thank you to everyone who participated in our service this evening. Appreciate it very much. And thank you for coming back. It's so good to see so many of you returning this evening. to see so many of you here. Flip side is, the more people, the longer it takes to distribute the handout. So we are grateful that you are, are here. All right. We are looking at the book of Job, round one, in the great contest between Satan and Job, like two heavyweight boxers going at it. And uh, tonight we look at round one. Job is not aware of the heavenly council, nor is there any indication that Job ever does become aware of it. In fact, It is essentially important to the story that Job is unaware of the reasons behind his predicament. Job is not to know the why of his suffering. And that, of course, is a major contributing factor to the trial that he's going to experience. Job doesn't know why all of these calamities that we are looking at tonight come upon him. And that is true of us. Many times we don't know the why behind God's sovereign decrees for the events and circumstances of our lives. We often think it would be so much easier if we did know the why, and perhaps it would be. But Job is not told the why. All that Job is aware of is the suffering that he is enduring. The reader is made aware and given a glimpse of the heavenly counsel, of which Job is not aware, so that the reader can understand the nature of, of true love and service to God. Theme tonight is Job is, that should be tried, not tired. Job is tried in order to prove that God is righteous in his judgments. That's one of the foundational elements of the book of Job. Why is Job going to be tried? It's not so much to prove that Job is righteous. It's to prove that God is righteous when he describes Job as a righteous person. It's actually a vindication of God and his judgment or his assessment of Job, that what God says is right. Now let's look at the heavenly scene. The angelic world comes to give a report of their activities and receive further instruction from God. The non-fallen angels come before God. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the term sons of God is used in a number of different ways in the Scripture. First, it can refer to the godly line from Seth. 
Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now, I probably should have chosen a different proof text than this, because there are some people that would argue that the sons of God here are are angels. But uh, I believe it's the godly line. But nonetheless, the scripture refers to the godly line of Seth as sons of God. Secondly, the term sons of God can and does refer to to the people of God through faith. Romans 8.14 For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So you and I can be referred to as sons of God. Of course, the term Son of God can and does refer to Jesus Christ. Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. However, Jesus is the Son of God in a very unique sense. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So he's a son in a different sense than you and I are a son of God. We are adopted sons. He is the only begotten Son of God. And then, thirdly, the term sons of God can and does refer to unfallen angelic beings. And I think that is what we're to see in our text. Here are these unfallen angelic beings who come to present themselves before God. B. The angels come before God in order to give an account of their activities and to receive instruction from God. For notice in verse 6, it says that they come to present themselves. They come to stand before Him and, and to give an account. That word to present means to stand in the presence of one and give an account. So they are reporting on their activities before God. See, the fallen angels, or at least Satan, also comes to present himself before God. For notice, it says in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So Satan is also coming to present himself before God. And so in this presentation, in this giving account before God, there's actually an interrogation that ensues. And so the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? God's question does not reflect an ignorance on God's part. Rather, it is a means of engaging Satan in a consideration of his activity. I I used... uh, as an illustration, Exodus 4.2, the Lord said to him, that's Moses, what is in your right hand? And he said, a staff. God didn't do that because he didn't know what was in Moses' right hand. I wonder what you have hid behind your back there, Moses. Tell me. What's in your hand? No, he's, he's leading Moses into a consideration of what he's going to do. So, too, it is with uh, Satan. Another example would be in the garden with Adam. When God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Uh, it's the beginning of an interrogation. And Satan's response is, in Job 1.7, Lord said, Job, where, where do you come from? Then, answered, uh, then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking about in it. And we find in 1 Peter 5.8 that that's in keeping 
with the activities of the evil one. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So Satan's on the prowl, if you will, if we want to use that analogy of the lion that is out looking for prey. Satan's activity is to be about looking for individuals that he can devour. So God then initiates this conversation concerning Job. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God wants to know if Satan has learned anything from Job. Have you considered, have you thought, have you reflected upon Job? Uh, Satan, you're walking around seeking whom you may devour. What do you think about Job? What's your assessment of him? What do you learn from him in this interrogation? God refers to Job as one who serves him. Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, Satan should be embarrassed as he considers and reflects upon Job and Job's consistency in his worship and dedication to God. Uh, It should be a means of conviction for Satan, who was to be a servant of God and failed and rebelled. God affirms the righteous character of Job. Verse 8, For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So he says, have you thought about Job? You're walking around. You're examining people. You're seeking whom you may devour. What do you think about Job? He's the most righteous person on the face of the earth. In all your travels, have you encountered anybody like Job is the question. Well, Satan disputes. God's characterization of Job. Satan contests that Job serves God for selfish reasons. In serving God, Job is actually being self-serving, is Satan's argument. He asks the question in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? God says, my servant Job is righteous. And Satan's reply is, huh, has he got you fooled? The only reason he serves you is because it serves himself. It's to his best interest. It's to his well-being. He is to his profit. It's his benefit. He's not really serving you. He's serving himself. And as long as everything goes fine, sure, it'll look like he's serving you. But Satan states that Job serves God not because of who God is, but what God has done for him. God has protected Job, verse 10. You have made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You protected Job. God has allowed Job to prosper. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands. God has allowed Job's possessions to flood the land. And his possessions have increased in the land. Satan asserts that if God would remove his protection from Job and take away what Job has, then Job would no longer serve God but actually curse God to his face. So he says in verse 11, But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, he will surely curse thee to thy face. 
he challenges the veracity, the truthfulness, the accuracy of God's assessment of Job. You see, that's where the real battle lies. That's where the real issue lies. Is God an appropriate judge of character? Does God know what goes on in the heart and mind of an individual? Because understand that Satan is going to be judged. And Satan is going to be condemned. And God proves through the faithfulness of Job that God's judgments are right. He knows whereof he speaks. He knows what's going in our hearts and mind. He understands our thoughts afar off. He knows what Job is going to do. He knows what the outcome is going to be. There is no doubt in the mind of God. There is no fear and trepidation. God is not sitting in heaven and says, boy, I hope this works out because my reputation is riding on this one guy, Job, and all the angels are hearing it and, wow, what happens if he fails? No, God knows. God knows. It is revelatory for Satan and the other angelic beings that God knows the hearts and minds of all that he creates. He is a just and holy, righteous God. His judgments are correct. Application. Satan still has access to heaven today. This work of the angels coming in, uh, presenting themselves before God, giving an account, is still taking place today. Secondly, Satan still accuses the brethren today. In fact, that is Satan's primary function and role. He is our adversary. And it is actually a uh, judicial term. Uh, He is the prosecuting attorney. (laughs) His role right now is that he is finding fault with us before the presence of God. And he fails because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are going to be found innocent before God. So notice in Revelation chapter 12, 10, in one day future, he will no longer have access to heaven and no longer make accusations against the believer. Revelation 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. That is when he's thrown out of heaven. That's when he no longer has any access to the presence of God. That's when Satan understands his days are numbered. And that comes at the end of the tribulational period. And Satan is furious at that time. He knows his end is coming. And he's on the prowl in ways that far supersede anything that's going on in the present day. So he's out for a vengeance. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. And he is going to come to this earth. He's going to 
bind Satan. He's going to be uh, not able to deceive or to tempt or to try people for a thousand years. And at the end of that millennial kingdom, he's released for a very brief sort of time. And then eventually he's going to be thrown into the bottomless pit. The point is that what is being described in the book of Job is even applicable to us today. Uh, Satan is still giving account. Satan is still walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is still finding fault with God's judgments and assessments of individuals. We need to know that because one of the greatest tricks of Satan, one of the greatest temptations that we need to understand is that Satan would love us to be deceived in thinking that God is displeased with us when he's not. That we aren't forgiven when we really are. That we aren't acceptable to God. You see, that's a part of this whole temptation. It is whether or not Job is a righteous person. And it is trying to get Job to question his acceptance before God. To make him think that because of all this that is coming on his back, all these troubles, it must mean that God hates me. It must mean that God is angry with me. It must mean that I'm unacceptable to God. That's what the friends understand. That's why they're calling upon him to repent. And Job says, no. I am righteous before God. But he understands and knows that that righteousness is more than just self-righteousness. For he speaks of the fact that his Redeemer is going to stand on the face of this earth. He understands the Redeemer. And Job knows that he's right before God. One of the things that we need to resist when things are going bad is to question God's approval and acceptance of us as though it were apart from Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. We stand absolved of our sin tonight. And anything that comes into our life is not a punishment for our sin. It might be disciplinary to draw us closer to God, but it is not a mark or a demarcation of God's wrath or hatred or disapproval of ourselves. G. God gives Satan permission to afflict Job within certain limits. God allows Satan to afflict Job. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Notice that Satan could not do this without God turning over the authority to Satan to do this. God places limitations upon Satan as how far he can go in afflicting Job. Only do not put forth your hand on him. But don't touch Job. He's off limits. You can do anything you want with what he possesses, what he owns, and his family. But keep your hands off of Job. That's round one. Round two, Satan is actually going to be able to put his hand on Job. And we'll look at that uh, next time. But right now, hands off of Job. Point being... That Satan can only go as far as God allows. And 
one of the things that we are absolutely certain of, according to the New Testament, is God will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape. God knows our limits. And God sets the boundaries so that those limits are never met. Those limits never are going to expire. God knows our hearts. And He is not going to ask or require of us anything more than what we are able to do by His grace. That's His promise to us. And so God limits the activity of the evil one. Application. God still allows Satan to test people. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat before Jesus dies. Uh, of course, you have that great statement of Peter that says, though all would curse you, I will never do that. Uh, I'm willing to die for you. And uh, God says to, to, to Peter, Peter, you're going to fail. Because he knows the heart and mind. He knows what is in Peter. He makes an accurate assessment that before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, you're going to give in. But Peter doesn't accept the assessment of God. He says, though everyone else will forsake you, I will not. He says that he's willing to die. He's wrong. God is right. It is in Peter's failure that the righteousness of God is affirmed. And Peter doesn't recognize his own weakness. You see, there's an interesting balance in Scripture. On the one hand, we know that we're not going to be tempted above what we are able. And on the other hand, we're told often of our weakness. And of course, Peter should have been praying for God's deliverance. He should have been praying for God's help. But of course, he was sleeping because he didn't see the need. He didn't see the need. I could go back to years ago when my kids were little, and we put certain restrictions upon them, and they would look at me and say, don't you trust me? And I would quickly say, no, I don't. But it's not you that I don't trust, it's human nature. I don't trust. We need to know our weaknesses. We need to know our limitations. We need to know that we're not as strong as we think we are. The purpose of the contest. Well, let me go on Luke twenty two thirty two. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That, that Peter isn't going to ultimately be undone through this. And of course, Peter goes on to serve God. The purpose of the contest. The contest is a contest made clear to the heavenly council. The contest serves to vindicate God's assessment as judge and also Job's servant. God throughout the Bible is concerned with demonstrating that he is righteous in his judgments. Uh, It's rather fascinating that God wants his holiness, his righteousness to be vindicated. God actually proves himself to us over 
and over again. Who are we to stand in judgment of God? Who is Satan to stand in judgment with God? Why does God allow Satan in the heavenly places to accuse God of, at worst, ignorance and, at best, lying? Why does God put up with Satan's challenge of God's assessment of Job? Because God is long-suffering even, even with Satan. And God is incredibly long-suffering to mankind that repeatedly raises its fist against God and says, God, who are you to tell me what to do? God, who are you to pass judgment upon me? So God repeatedly gives us these examples in the Word of God to vindicate His righteous judgment. For example, Jesus is condemned and suffers publicly in order to demonstrate that God is righteous both in His punishment of sin and forgiveness of sin. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we're declared righteous based on a gift that comes to us through Jesus Christ. The righteousness is not ours, it's His. Number one, Jesus Christ was punished publicly for man's sin, whom God displayed publicly, that is Jesus, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Jesus suffered publicly for man's sin to demonstrate that God is righteous in punishing sin, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation through His blood, through faith, that was to demonstrate His righteousness. God demonstrated that He was righteous. He was holy. He was just. God said, the wages of sin is death. God keeps His word. God says what He's going to do. And Jesus died publicly to bear testimony to God's righteous decisions. God wasn't fooling around. God wasn't pretending. God didn't make up a story just to scare mankind to say the wages of sin is death. He meant it. And he wouldn't go back on his holiness. He wouldn't go back on his word. He required death of an individual that committed sin. And that is why Jesus died publicly on a cross. He was bearing the punishment of sin. He was bearing God's wrath. He was bearing God's justice. And God was proving Himself just because He would not even wink at His own Son. God is so holy, God is so righteous, that He wouldn't even let His own Son off the hook. You know, sometimes we have a double standard for people outside of our families and people inside our families. Uh, we're quick to exact justice on people out, but people inside, sometimes we tend to cut them a break. Jesus caught no break. He experienced the full wrath of God. Three. Jesus suffered publicly for man's sin to demonstrate that God was righteous in punishing sin and just and forgiving mankind. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just. 
that it was appropriate for God to forgive. Because the penalty was met. The penalty was paid. So, Jesus Christ died. To prove that God was just. Both in what He said about sin, and also in providing forgiveness. Because God's righteous standard was met through Christ's obedient life and holiness. But all this was done publicly, it says, to prove that God is righteous. To prove that God is just. Thus, Job's faithful endurance of suffering does glorify God, for it demonstrates the truthfulness of God's assessment of Job. Application. The purpose of Job's suffering is to prove not only that Job is righteous, but more importantly, that God is righteous. We are called upon to live godly lives so we bear testimony to the veracity or truthfulness of God's Word. Secondly, the earthly scene. Job is severely tested. Job's testing is severe because of Satan's timing. The testing came in the midst of Job's prayers and sacrifices. Uh, These things are helpful for us to understand about how Satan works. Job 1.13, Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. If you remember in Job chapter 1 verse 5 last week, Now it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So it was the practice of Job on a regular occasion on this last day of feasting to have a a special act of consecration and dedication of his family to God. It is at that time when he is praying and interceding for his children, that they may have done something wrong and consecrating them, dedicating them to God. God, these are my children. Do with them what is pleasing in your sight. will glorify you and make them walk before you in exemplary piety. It's when he got those words out of his mouth that all these troubles happened. One might say, what value is there in prayer? B, Job's testing is severe because it becomes so unexpectedly. Job 1.13, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, everything seemed to be going hunky-dory. Everything in Job's life was turning to gold. Everything was terrific. And all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, it turns on its head. Job's testing is severe because of the greatness of his loss. There was a great loss of livestock. That a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. But not only was there a great loss of property, there was a great loss of life. And the Sabines attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. We are going to see that in these accounts... There is a um, an incremental increase in the attacks of the evil one. And I would just point out to you that in each of these attacks, it's the property first, and then it's the people second. Uh, as rich as Job was, his servants meant more to him than his riches. 
His servant's well-being was more important to him than any oxen or cattle or material possessions. Next, Job's testing is severe because the afflictions are compounded. While he was yet speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed the three bands and made a raid on their camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And so, it wasn't just one trial that he was facing. It was trial after trial after trial. And it wasn't just trial after trial after trial, but it's the rapidity, the, the rapidness of these afflictions. Look at verse 16. While he was yet speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped you. While he was still speaking, another also came and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped and told you. While he was yet speaking. So, while one servant gets this bad news out of his lips, there's another servant standing there ready to give his update. And while he's speaking, another servant arrives. And he's there to give his update. It's bad news upon bad news upon bad news. We all know the adage, when it rains, it pours. We need to understand that. That is so commonplace that we all know the adage. Many times, it's problem after problem after problem that we face in our lives. Not isolated. Sometimes with incredible rapidity. It just seems like the whole world is caving in in our lives because of all the things that are happening at once. So it was for Job. I've got to move on quickly. F. Job's testing is severe because of the diversity of the cause of the afflictions. Two of the courses of the affliction were human in nature. Verses 14 and 15. The messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding before them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. In Job 1.17, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a rain on the camels. So, here are bad people. Here are the enemies of, of Israel. Here are the people that you would expect to do bad things. So it isn't just totally out of the blue to think that Sabaeans would come and destroy. And the Chaldeans would come and destroy. That's what Sabaeans do. That's what Chaldeans do. But, in addition to that, we not only have the human side... But we have the supernatural acts. Verse 16. While we yet speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them. While we yet still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck down the four corners. Not only was it evil mankind... And that's easy to explain. You know, we can say, oh, well, you know, that's what evil people do. And that's not of God. But it's not just evil mankind. There's fire from heaven. There's this incredible wind that comes. These are known in <clears throat> insurance language acts of God. This is not just what humans were doing. This was supernatural in nature. Next, Job's testing is severe because the loss includes that which he holds to be very precious. Your sons and your daughters. They're last. 
because they're most precious. And then Job's testing is severe because the loss of his adult children was while they were still young. Job 1.19, and it fell on the young people and they died. It's tough to lose your children at any age. But it is most tough when they are struck down in the prime of life. We don't expect our children to die before us. And we certainly don't expect healthy children to die. You realize that none of these children were sick. None of them had a disease that Job was preparing for in his heart. One day they are fine. And the next day they are dead. Every single child of Job dies. Snuffed out in the prime of life. This is severe testing. I submit to you that no human being apart from the Son of God, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, no human being has suffered to the extent that Job has. Why do I say that? Because he's the most righteous person on the face of the earth. His limitations were incredible. For notice Job's response to his testing. Job passed with flying colors. First, Job is filled with sorrow and grief. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. These were all signs of, of grief. What would you expect? Job is devastated. I mean, I mean, just imagine the overwhelming grief that must have come upon him. He loses everything, including his, his children. He, he is just wiped. But notice what he does. He submits himself to the will of God. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. He fell to the ground. A number of years ago, I, I did a uh, series on prayer in which I talked about the different positions of prayer. We have people standing, we have people kneeling in prayer, we have people with heads bowed, we have people that are prostrate before God. They all represent something different, a, a different aspect of what's going on in prayer. Job falls face down before God. Face down before God. It's the exact opposite of what Satan says. Satan says, he will curse you to your face. He will have no problem looking you in the face and accusing you. Job, in his humility, doesn't even lift his face towards God. He lies flat down in the dirt and says, who am I to question the character or veracity of God? And he pours out his heart before God, face down in the dust, for he realizes there is nothing that he can do. And then, Job not only does not curse God with his mouth, Job worshiped God and praised him with his words. Then arose Job, tore his clothes, shaved his head, 
fell to the ground and worshipped. And notice what he says. This is the declaration. You'll worship God first by recognizing the temporal nature of life. He said, Naked have I come from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. Job says, in essence, I couldn't, I couldn't take any of this with me. This is all for this life. He knew that in the life to come, all of this wealth, all of the things that he had would mean nothing. He said, I came into life with nothing. I'm going to leave this life with nothing. Next, Job worshiped God by acknowledging the sovereignty of God. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He acknowledged what he had was from God. He also acknowledged that what he lost was from God. He understood the activity of God. He understood that he was under God's protection and care. He didn't say, you know, those awful Chaldeans, those miserable Sabaeans, that scum of the earth took my livestock. He also doesn't say, Satan got the upper hand this time. Satan took my livestock. Now, in a sense, Satan did. But he knew, without God telling him, without raising the veil, that Satan couldn't do anything that God did not permit. And so we find in the New Testament, all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over every event in our life. And God didn't let, excuse me, Job didn't let God off the hook, if you will. Job did not worship God by saying, God, I know you love me, and I know you couldn't do anything about this. Or, God, you love me, I know you watch over me, but Satan got the best of you this time. Now, he worships God by saying, God, you are in control. You give, you take. And then thirdly, Job worshiped God by proclaiming the goodness of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He acknowledged God's sovereignty and viewed it as a reason to worship. Satan said, he's going to curse you to your face. When he sees what you have done, he's not going to want to serve you any longer. All those selfish interests will be taken away. And then he won't serve you. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God. But it doesn't turn him away from God. It, in fact, drives him to God. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He is to be exalted. He is to, to worship. A summary of Job's response. Quickly. First, Job did nothing sinful in response. Through all this, Job did not sin. Job did not take this bad news out on his servants. Two, Job did not bring any accusation against the person of God. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
Verse 22, nor charge God with folly. Or charge God with wrongdoing. I like that the best of the translations because he acknowledged it was God. But he never attacked the character of God based on what God did. He never found fault with God. He never said, God, you are unfair. God, you are unjust. God, you made a mistake. It goes back to the beginning. When Satan is challenging God's decision about Job. And Satan says, you've got it wrong about Job. Job, after going all through this, says, God does it right. I don't understand it all. I can't explain it all. But I know God is just and holy and right. And he worships as a, as, as a result. Concluding lessons. First, as believers, we're to have confidence in God's word and judgments. We are to acknowledge that what God says is right and true and just and will come to pass. He knows our hearts. As believers, we're to live lives consistent with his word to the honor and glory of God. As believers, we're to serve God by submitting ourselves to his will and purpose for our lives. That's what Job said when he consecrated his children. It's the same thing we say when we dedicate our children. And one of the questions is, do you submit your children to God's will for their lives, whatever that may involve? And we all say yes. But do we really? Job really did. When he consecrated his children and he voted them to God, he said, whatever your will is. And he meant it. And he lived by it. And he glorified God through it. D, as believers live consistent lives in the midst of adversity, we demonstrate the truth of the gospel to Satan and a non-believing world. The service that we are to render is the proper response that we have to things over which we have no control. The proper response that we are to have is to worship God. In every circumstance of life, we are to acknowledge God for who He is and what He does. We are always to acknowledge that everything is under His control. That's what we mean by sovereign. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. Nothing happens into our life without His will being ultimately accomplished. We worship God by acknowledging His sovereignty. We worship God by acknowledging His character. He is holy. He's just. He's righteous. We may not be able to explain, but we know that God does what is right in the end. We know that one day we're going to understand it. And that's when we stand in His presence. We know that God is righteous. We know that God is holy. And we know that God hears us. And God is pleased with Job's worship. May God be pleased with our worship of Him this week. Round one. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Job. Help us to be more like Him. Help us to understand what righteousness really consists of in worshiping You even in the midst of adversity. That we wouldn't serve You just for selfish purposes and gains, but we would serve You to Your honor and glory so that Your name would be praised, so that people would see a display of Your love and character, Your goodness, Your holiness. Oh Lord, help us to live a life that glorifies You. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.